Well, this month, our nation is celebrating Pride Month. Today, we're going to be looking at the gay pride movement that is picking up steam in our nation. While our country becomes further divided on many important issues, amazingly, this is one area that's becoming an area that is seeing growing levels of approval in pretty much every social bracket. I saw a stat this last week that said that 84% of 18 to 35-year-olds in America believe the government should sanction same-sex marriage. That same study would go to show that even those in other age brackets, the older age brackets, had a majority of people who would agree with that same sentiment. Not very long ago, this was an issue that was divided largely along political party lines. But even that's been changing, as we've been seeing over these past few years. I happen to live in a pretty conservative area of Salt Lake County. And just yesterday afternoon, I went for a jog, and as I was just running near the lake where I live, I was counting the numbers of gay pride flags that I saw in the neighborhood. And I lost track. Well over a hundred of these flags. Some houses with multiples of them. I even saw a young couple walking with a girl had a mask on, a hundred degree, uh, with a rainbow on it. Everywhere we look, we see it. But perhaps most concerning is that this issue is creeping its way into the Christian church. Some churches have decided to actively promote the gay pride movement, while a growing number of pastors have become hesitant to preach on or even mention this topic with the clarity it deserves. So how are we as Christians to answer this question, to think about this issue? As with all things, we must find the answer in God's word alone. We go to it. We start here as our foundation. So this morning, we're going to zoom out a little bit and set the stage for our thinking on this really important topic. We're going to be in Romans chapter 1. If you have your Bibles with you, you're welcome to open there. I will put the the slides up for you. Romans chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 18. And I just want to begin by praying, and then we're going to go back through a paragraph or so at a time. So let's pray as we get started. Father, this morning, we are asking for help for great clarity on such a hot topic today. Lord, I have a great desire to address this today not just to deal with hot-button issues, but because I'm seeing more and more and more believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, desiring help in their thinking on this stuff, wondering how to navigate difficult issues that they're facing on a growing basis. So Lord, please help me serve my brothers and sisters well. Help us all to humbly submit to your word. And Lord, not only in facts, and principles, but even an emphasis and priority. Help us to give the right emphasis to this particular topic. Lord, we do trust you. We do trust what you have said. And we need help, great help, in a day when we're hearing lies around us all the time. We need your Holy Spirit to clean house. Help us to see rightly and to think with the mind of truth. And that is a Very great ask. So we do ask this morning for a miracle to take place in our minds, Lord. Help our hearts to be softened so we can see and understand and apply these things. In Jesus' good name we pray. Amen. Starting in verses 18 through 20, the Apostle Paul writes this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. Two things are given to us here right off the bat. First, we all know that there is a God. All humankind knows that God exists. And we know God in such a way that we cannot feign ignorance as we stand before him in judgment. Now, when I say that, I'm well aware that someone might push back. Some might argue 
challenge. Rich, are you saying that there are no people that genuinely disbelieve in God? No, I'm not saying that at all. There are certainly people that genuinely disbelieve in God. But this passage tells us that the only way a person can arrive at that state is by suppressing the truth. You can convince yourself of all kinds of lies, but that's what it takes. It takes convincing yourself. In the end, God will not judge anyone who genuinely never knew that he existed. He will judge those who by their unrighteousness have suppressed the truth and have refused to accept the truth and so be saved. And that's all of us. So first, again, we all know that there is a God. Second, it says here that we all deserve his judgment because of our ungodliness, because of our unrighteousness. And Paul goes on in the next few verses to explain more about this unrighteousness. He says in verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The people stopped worshiping God. But but notice something here. Their worship did not cease altogether. It transferred from God to something else. This is important for us to remember. All people are worshipers. We were literally made to worship. Fish swim, birds sing, stars shine, winds blow. Humans worship. We are intrinsically, inherently worshipers. This is why if you and I were to find a previously undiscovered island inhabited by an unknown people group, the question would not be whether or not they worship a deity, but which deity they worship. And how can you know what people worship? Whatever gets your greatest attention and your greatest affection, that is what you worship. That is your God. It's easy for people today in our modern arrogance to cast aspersions on those ignorant ancient imbeciles for building their idols of wood and stone to represent animals. But we build them out of glass and aluminum and LEDs in the image of rectangles. And the worship continues. Just like those ancient rubes, we all know God exists and still refuse to worship him. But we find something else that we deem worthy of our worship. And what does God do as a result? What is the repercussion for this insubordination? He continues in Romans 1, 24 through 25. He says this, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God gives them up. Because we have all exchanged the truth about God for a lie, exchanged worship of him for worship of his stuff, God goes from giving us what we need to giving us what we want. And that giving us what we want is God's wrath revealed. That is judgment on display. When you see the world get what it cries out for, you are observing judgment take place. Like a spoiled child, Oftentimes, the worst thing that you can do for that child is to give her what she wants. That's what God does. This giving up or turning us over language shows up two more times in this passage. But Paul makes it clear what it is that God gives us up to. Look at the next few verses, starting in verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. 
men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So what does God give us up to? Dishonorable passions. And he goes on to define that here in this passage as homosexual activity. Right here in this passage, in the opening chapter of Romans, this is the New Testament. This is after the days of Jesus. This is in a letter written to Gentiles, Romans, not Jews. God's Holy Spirit inspires the Apostle Paul to explicitly call out homosexual practice as sin in the eyes of God. Homosexual behavior is, without a doubt, sin. Now, you should know that over the past 10 or 15 years, there, there's been a shift in the debate between professing Christians that approve of homosexual behavior and professing Christians that do not approve of homosexual behavior. The argument from the pro-homosexual side used to be that this text does not condemn all homosexual behavior, just non-consensual or non-monogamous, non-committed homosexual behavior. But those arguments, you need to know, have almost entirely been abandoned. If you follow the articles that are up to date on this, if you follow the books, if you listen to the videos and observe the debates, that view has almost entirely been thrown out. Why? Because these texts are so excruciatingly clear. They are genuinely undebatable. That's why the argument has switched not to, is it really, does it really say that? But instead it switches to, should we believe Romans 1? In fact, the argument has even gone to, maybe God was just wrong here. I was once talking to a professing Christian who had embraced a homosexual lifestyle, and I challenged him on this front. I said, God says it's a sin. He goes, no, God doesn't say that. And I just read passages like this one, two or three out loud to him, and he goes, well, then I just disagree. God is just wrong. And this shouldn't surprise us. Because this kind of thing happens all the time, that when the logic of one argument goes down in flames, the advocates just find another argument to justify their original position. You see, the argument was not ever a genuine argument. It was disingenuous from the beginning. It never was an argument. It was a lie. As verse 25 said, which we just read, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. It's not just ignorance. It is not just well-meaning mistake or confusion. It's a lie that is being believed and purported as truth. Sinful people want the lie more than the truth. And what does God do? He lets them have it. God's word is as clear on homosexual behavior as it is about murder. It always has been and always will be seen in God's eyes as a sin, deserving of his just wrath. Deserving the due penalty for their error. Paul continues in verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not, not be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There are plenty more sins that God turns us over to than just homosexuality, right? And this list is not even exhaustive. More could be added from other passages in the Bible. But notice what he says in the next verse, the final verse of this chapter, in verse 32. It says this, Though they know God's righteous decree, verse 32, the next one, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Does that sound familiar? 
The weight of judgment falls not only on those who do the sins listed in that prior list, homosexuality and the others, but the weight of guilt is also placed on those who approve of those who practice them. Regarding homosexuality, I don't believe I need to convince you that this is what we're observing today. This is no longer a private issue. It's not even a partisan one. Nor is it one where you can expect to be afforded the dignity of holding a contrary view privately. It is being paraded in the streets, quite literally, celebrated by our peers, and openly applauded in every institution in our nation. And if it has not happened already for you, the day will almost surely come where it will be demanded of you or of your children that you pledge your loyalty to this agenda. And if you think otherwise, I think you'll be sorely mistaken. So what should we do? When we read Romans 1 as a church, you read it on your own in quiet time, pound through this text. You could spend weeks on this text. This is reading out loud what we're observing in front of us today. So what are we to do as believers in light of these things? I hope to spend the rest of our time today with five application points, five principles that I think we are to draw upon to serve us regarding the issue of homosexuality and the gay pride movement today. First, we must tell the truth. Christians are truth lovers, truth seekers, truth proclaimers. There is no room for darkness in this. There is no room for deception, not one little lie. As believers, we are absolutely committed to the truth. Jesus himself says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by me. We love truth and we hate lies. We hate lies because God hates lies. And we must display our love to others by being totally honest with them. It is no kindness, it is no love to others to lie to them or let them believe lies from us. We must be clear and honest with them. If you're a non-believer with us today, if you're listening online, watching a video, or maybe in a radio in the car, or a podcast at some time, you need to know that even if you identify as lesbian, gay, bi, trans, anything like that, or if you're just somebody who approves of or is an advocate of that cultural movement, you need to know you don't need to believe what we believe in order to be welcome to, to come and observe how we worship God. And hear the Bible proclaim, watch us love one another. You don't need to believe almost anything that we believe for you to be re received in that way. You are an image bearer of God. You are made for his worship, as we said earlier, and we will give you the respect of being honest with you. We will not play with you with kid gloves on. We will just tell you the truth, and you will know that what we're saying is really what we believe because we honor our Lord. In fact, we have biblical convictions that motivate us to refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by an open statement of truth, we will commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. But brace yourself, non-believer, because as truth tellers, we will shamelessly, unreservedly try to compel you to repent of your sins and turn in faith to Jesus. We will tell you time and time again of the gospel. We will call you to turn your back on the wicked ways of the world, to reject whatever identity you have held prior to knowing Jesus and put all of your stock in him. We will tell you that you're a sinner just like us. We will not parade it over you that we are the wise and righteous ones because we're not. We're the sinner like you who saw our sin, who saw that all humanity had sinned before God and was deserving of his just punishment. But that in God's great love, he sent his only son to take our sins and the punishment due for our sins to the cross. And he was murdered for those sins. He bore punishment for all of those who would ever believe. So that if you put your saving faith in him, you can have eternal life. And he raised from the dead, 
proving once and for all to all of those who would look against him to say he was who he said that he was. That if we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have eternal life. And you need to repent of your sins and turn in faith to him today. If you're with us today and you have not done that, talk to somebody before you leave. Don't eat again. Don't sleep again until you square your life away with God. We would love to talk with you. We would love to share our story with you. We'd love to open the Bible with you. You need to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Turn your back on the world and turn to face him. And even if you're not there yet, we will be patient with you. We will love you for years and years. You are welcome to be here. But the agenda is not welcome here. The agenda will not be welcome here. And here a distinction needs to be made between the individual person, the image bearer of God, loved by him, who loves a, lives a homosexual lifestyle and the cultural war machine that is driving our entire nation over a cliff. We are not here to make much of you or of ourselves. We are here to make much of God. And do not believe the fairy tale that our nation's cultural elites want what's best for you. On either side of the political aisle, for the record, they have proven time and time again that you are merely a number to them, a pawn that they will seek to use for their own political and personal gains. And if you doubt that for even just a second, step out of line and watch what happens. They will not merely turn their back on you. They will pounce and they will eat you alive. We love you more than that. We will dignify you as an image bearer of God, equal to us in creation, made to worship him. And we will tell you the truth. This place will be a refuge for you, a place where even at great cost, we will be truthful. And that brings us to point two. Brothers and sisters, Christians, hold your churches, your pastors, your church leaders accountable on this. There are many churches that, that will tacitly kind of claim in private conversation that homosexual behavior is sin, but they play footsie under the table with the gay pride movement. They're scared to death to say anything publicly. They will not speak with clarity on these issues. Romans 12.2 tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. There are only two paths on this. You can either be conformed to Christ or you can be transformed by the world. That's your options. You can be conformed to the world or transformed by Christ. That's it. You get to go his way or the world's way. Christ's church should look decidedly different than the world. Hold us as your pastors accountable to teaching rightly on these topics. And don't tolerate any wiggling on this front. This is too important. This is too much at the center of the cultural issues in our day. Do not support churches or ministries or church leaders who will roll over on this stuff. There's no room for that. There's absolutely no wiggling here on this agenda. Like every other idol, like every other altar to false gods in the Bible, it deserves to be burnt to a smoldering crisp. The godly kings of the Old Testament were commended for tearing down the high places. Because although the people loved worshiping at those high places, that worship was destroying their nation. And it's not just Old Testament. As believers, we have New Testament precedents for refusing to let cultural demands gain a footing in the church. Here's a little different circumstance, but, but a similar motivation. I want you to consider this about what was called the Galatian heresy. The Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church, churches of Galatia in the mid-first century. At that time, the dominant force set against the church was not the Romans. That would eventually come. It was the Jewish people, the Jewish leaders particularly. In fact, they were the ones that commissioned the attacks and the hunt for Christians in the church. They were the greatest threat to the New Testament church. And they demanded not just that Christians die for their beliefs, but they even infiltrated the church in order to try to change the people's views to become more Jewish. Namely, circumcision. That was what was at play 
in Galatia at the time. The Jewish culture was advancing its agenda into the church. It found sympathizers with this view and began to bring it in as a false teaching. And as long as Christians were generally willing to comply, there could be a kind of peace. I want you to listen to what the Apostle Paul said about the motivation of these leaders who are letting their people be pressed by the culture. He says this in Galatians 6.12. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the gospel of Christ. You need to remember it was not sinful to get circumcised. The person could with clear conscience. But Paul knew that this was a gospel issue. It was a hill worth dying on. This is why he says in Galatians 1, at the beginning of the letter, he says this, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see in the connection these cultural issues, in our day, the circumstances are different. It's not circumcision that's being imposed from outside. But the motivations are the same. There are pastors. There are seminary professors. Evangelical leaders all over the country who are getting exposed by this cultural movement today. They prove by their actions that they are more concerned about what the world says about them than what God thinks of them. They are scared to death about what the world will say. And they have thus disqualified themselves from leadership in a church. Paul, Paul goes on in chapter two of that same book. He says this about that heresy coming in. He says this, we did not yield in submission for a moment. That's the language. Paul did not compromise. Okay, okay, okay. So we met with them, we decided, we'll give you your space. We'll take our space. He doesn't come in and go, listen, 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 you can be circumcised, it's not a big deal, so let's just stop making a big deal about this. Paul didn't go, let's just meet in the middle. You come two steps this way, we'll come two steps that way, it'll all be good. Paul goes, not moving an inch. Far too long, churches in America have been trying to please the world. We become very familiar in taking cues from the world, saying, well, what, do you, what do you want? What, what, what should we look like? What, what do you think? What would you prefer? James 4.4, 4, also New Testament. James says, you adulterous people, he's talking to Christians, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. The church needs to make war on this agenda, not cuddle with it. And we must get it out of our minds that we can please both God and the sinful fallen world at the same time. Not going to happen. We've got to stop trying. There's no amount of compliance that will be sufficient until it's absolute, bold, and vocal rejection of the gospel. There is no room for compromise here. Churches are supposed to be the light in this world. But every day we hear of more and more churches and Christian leaders who surrender to this godless crusade. So just for clarity for you, you need to hear this. Under no circumstances should churches or individual Christians, for that matter, fly gay pride flags outside of their homes or church buildings. Under no circumstances should Christians march in gay pride parades. Under no circumstances should Christians approve of what God calls in his word an abomination. We may not give approval to those who practice them. We may not. We are commanded by our Lord. For the honor of our Lord and for the love of people, Christ's local churches must be immovable here. Immovable. And I hear the objection ringing in my head because I've heard it most of my life and it's getting louder in our day. But Rich, we're commanded to love our neighbor and when we reject this movement and reject it publicly, we are essentially telling them that we hate them. 
and they will think God hates them and we will defame the gospel, right? Wrong. That's a lie. And we must not believe it. Brings me to point three. Refuse to believe worldly lies. Brothers and sisters, if there is one place as a Christian church today, we need to become super resilient. It's to lies. We need to become the absolute crossed arms, stubborn ones. Nope, not believing it. I will not, not believe one word of your lying. On this front, it's so clear. People tell this lie to us over and over. In order to love your gay neighbor, you must also love the gay pride movement. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Jesus once said that the first and second greatest commandments are to love the Lord and neighbor. In that order. So as a church, we set ourselves to love God first, others second, self last. That's the order. And we do that not because the world says so, but because our Lord and Master says so. That's why we do that. He even tells us to love and pray for our enemies. The Christian faith, then, is one that is driven by a radical love for God and for people, sinners of every stripe. God alone gets to tell us what love is and how to show it. I'm going to say that again. God alone gets to tell us what love is and how to show it. We are not to look to worldly opinions and surveys to find the answer to how we should love people. In other words, we are not to go to a world that, for the record, has lost all credibility regarding issues of love and sex and gender and peace and life and ask them, what should we do to make you feel loved by us and God? They don't even know what love is. We must show them. We must show them real love. If you have compassion in your hearts for people like this, you have got to let God tell you how to love them. What kind of parent would look to their kids and their kids say, this is how you love me. Give me, give me nothing but uh, candy at night and let me stay up as late as I want and uh, give me all the money I want. Parents would go, that, that wouldn't be good for you. No, no, I'm not going to show you love in that way. I'll show you love in the real way, the right way, with honor and discipline and care and provision and protection. We do not let the world tell us how we must love. Jesus commands us to love all people, even Nazis, But that doesn't mean that we should fly a swastika outside of our home or our churches to prove we love them. We love the people, but we abominate the movement. We hate the movement. This is not hard to understand. The logic is so obvious on this one. If you just pause and look at it. Each week, we as a church have people who go out on the streets and will stand in the front of abortion mills because they hate abortion, but they love love dearly the women that are coming in to kill their babies. And they pray for them and with them and they proclaim the truth and they help them and they love them. Every week, we have people from our church out on the streets sharing the gospel with people who are caught in the lie, the trap of Mormonism. And guess what? They hate Mormonism, but they love Mormons. In fact, it's the hatred of the lie that compels them to proclaim the truth. Guys, if you had a child who were to grow up and in their, their getting older years, they were to come back home and visit, and they were to tell you that they were, they were caught up in the drug of heroin. They were just overwhelmed by it, and they loved it. They, they, they couldn't get enough of it. They were just being tossed to and fro by it. And they said, I want you to love heroin like I love it. Would you just go, okay. I'll love and support that too. By your love, you would see the devastation that it is wreaking, and you would say, I I cannot do that. I can't do that. I hate what hurts you. I hate what brings destruction on you because I love you. And I will always receive you, even if that's still your mess, but I will never comply with your love for heroin. I will daily try to convince you to give it up for life. And it is love that compels this. We do not grant that lie that we must comply with the movement. We don't believe that lie for a moment. Absolutely no part of this God-hating, life-wrecking agenda may gain a foothold in our churches or in our homes. Romans 12.9 even says, Let love be genuine, genuine. Abhor what is evil. 
Hold fast to what is good. Genuine love hates evil. And we are commanded by God to set ourselves against it. Abhor, brother and sister, abhor that machine. You need to know this political machine is one of the most bigoted, discriminatory, prejudiced, and classist movements in the history of our nation. And it is destroying people, people that we are commanded to love and to serve. We may not believe the worldly lies. And we must teach our kids to be resilient to those lies as well. We must teach them truth, truth, truth. Teach them to to identify and expose the lie and then reject it. We're to do this every day with our kids. We're to prepare the next generation to by the time they get 20 years from now, the generation of believers has been like, we're not putting up with this one bit in our households or in our churches. Many Christians, in my view, this is my opinion, I think, by my experience, that many Christian parents in our day have failed their kids by being afraid to engage with the topic of sexuality. There has been a charge laid at Christians for the last several decades that we are very prudish in our approach to sex. I think probably a lot of that charge could be true. But the answer is not then to just turn our children over to the world to teach them about these things but to train them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Brothers and sisters, if at all possible, get them out of state-controlled schools where they will be daily discipled to love what God hates. Please, for the love of your children, the kingdom, the next generation, teach them what is true about this. Teach them to hate the lie. Effort towards this. You know, this whole movement has been named Pride. Gay pride. I can't think of a better name. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. God says that he is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. God hates arrogance and pride. We may not give approval to those who practice sin. It is not kindness for us to do so. We may not follow that lie, but we must reject it wholesale. And in order to combat those lies, there's going to be a vacancy. All of a sudden, it's going to be like a vacuum. When you take a lie out, it needs to be filled with a truth. A gaping hole will remain unless we do number four. Develop a biblical theology of sexuality. Let the Bible tell you about sex and gender, men and women, their roles, their responsibilities. And if you didn't know this, men are not women and women are not men. And we're not making that up. Jesus said it. That in the beginning, God created them male and female. He made them. Guys, the Bible is so clear about this stuff. You and I would do well to be prepared with a sound foundational doctrine built on the word of God, a theology of human sexuality. We should know what the Bible says about this stuff. You and I are going to face all kinds of difficult circumstances, and it's kind of like war. When you, if you're to go to war and, and rage an actual literal battle, you're fighting, bloodshed, bombs going off, all that kind of stuff, there's no way that training could ever prepare you for every possible circumstance, every bullet coming from every possible direction. So what does a drill sergeant do? He trains you in the big principles to know that gives you the tool belt so that whatever you're going to face, you're prepared to deal with it. In a similar way, we need to get these big principles down in our heart. Someday, you might have a lesbian neighbor, for example, that you come to love and get to know and share meals with and relationship with. And, and she even has come to know that, that you're a Christian and you've had opportunity to share the gospel. And she kind of looks, she knows that you don't approve of her lifestyle, but you're becoming friends together. And finally, one day she says, hey, I'm getting married. I want you to come to my lesbian wedding. I know you don't necessarily approve of my lifestyle, but it'd mean a lot to me if you just were there to show love and support. Will you go? What if your third grader comes home and shows you his reading assignment, which is a book extolling the virtues of transgenderism? What will you do? What do you do if your boss requires you to wear a rainbow T-shirt for Pride Month 2022? 
and your job's on the line? What if you're expected to attend gender, fluidity, assignment, sensitivity type training? And at the end of that, you were to express, express agreement with those views in order to keep your job. What are you going to do? There are more issues than I could possibly cover in 10 sermons, let alone one. And what's more, I could be wrong on how to apply some of this. It is so wonderful then that we don't have to rely on ourselves or on sinful and imperfect pastors, preachers, or other worldly opinions. We get to rely on God's word where we are not expected to invent new views and opinions and doctrine, but just trust and obey. You need to start reading, studying, preparing yourself now for those kinds of questions. Hopefully this morning is a helpful introduction to this topic. There is so much more that could be said. You need to know that this last week was one of those study weeks for me where I prepared four sermons. And the hardship was whittling it down to one for today. And I had to decide, is this, is this best to try to just make it like a super long sermon and get everything in? I'm already talking fast. Right, Deb? She knows more than most. Should I break this up into to kind of four weeks worth of this? I, I, I just went back and forth on that all week long. And at the end, I thought, maybe this would best serve the congregation for there just to be as concise as I could give you, just something. Trying to be clear, but succinct. You're going to have to do study on your own. With this open and trusting what it says and rejecting the cultural lies. If you think that you can just not prepare yourself and just hope that if someday you happen to find yourself confronted with a genuine challenge, like one of the ones I just gave you, you can just wing it. Your job might be on the line. Your livelihood might be on the line. Friendships with neighbors might be on the line. Relationships inside your own household or in your family might be on the line. And the world is looking to us and saying, you're the ones who are supposed to have the answer. You're supposed to have clarity here. I'm amazed how often I've talked with Mormons before, active, true blue Mormons. We're very frustrated that the church won't make strong stances. And they hear that Christians have an actual doctrine. I'll tell you exactly why this is a sin. Boom. And they're going, man, why, why, is, why will our church not give clarity? You guys will just say it. Guys, that's a witness in and of itself. We need to be prepared. And you need to know, ankle-deep theology will not prepare you to swim when the flood comes. Wading in the shallow end of the pool will not be enough. So find a unit of trusted brothers and sisters who can help you think through these things. You don't need scholars. You don't need world experts in order to get this. Just faithful believers who love God's word more than the lies of the world. There may even be fellow Christians you know who struggle with this stuff and would greatly benefit from walking through it with you. A deep study with other Christians. Thought of that? So, so on that note, to the believer who finds himself or herself facing temptations of a homosexual nature. And you need to hear this from us more than anyone in the world. There needs to be a distinction made between homosexual behavior and homosexual impulses. It is true that we as believers need God's help with both the sins we have already committed and with those that we are tempted to commit. But I see no biblical reason to believe that a Christian could not feel desires for the member of the same sex. And I don't doubt that those feelings could feel entirely natural or instinctive to that person. In fact, technically, the argument over whether or not a person could be born with it is irrelevant on this front. All Christians are born with a corrupt view of sexuality. All of us. And we are to repent of whatever ungodly view we have and align our lives to whatever God says about sexuality. All of us. And so we must be very careful, Christian, very careful to not lump our Christian brothers and sisters that struggle with this, that are tempted by it, in with all the other worldly glorification of sin we see out there today. It's not the same thing. And I just want to show this to you. 
And a great encouragement to you, if this is you or someone ever listens to this and is hearing this, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. I want to put this up for you so you see this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There is no such thing as a gay Christian. Just a Christian. Just a member of the body of Christ. The old life has been put to death, crucified on the cross of Christ. And we now live as members of this body free from that sin. Do not let the world try to convince you. Gay Christians, get over in this circle. You're one of us. You're just a Christian. You are loved by God and by his church and should be received as such. And you, just as the rest of us, will need help daily overcoming temptation to sin and to live in a way that brings honor to our Lord. You should have no fear about being in fellowship with other Christians if you're struggling to defeat sin in your life. Welcome to the family. We are not afraid of you. You're one of us. I say this in part because I know that there may be children among us who someday may deal with this, may be tempted in this way, may struggle with this. Do you think that the enemy goes, nah, don't, don't tempt Christians with this? We need to be ready. And that brings us to the last point, number five. We must pray and trust God. Pray for our families to be resilient to the lies. Pray for our kids that as they grow up, that they have these impulses, these temptations. They'll know how to talk about them. They'll understand what the Bible says about these things, that they'll have access to other believers in their lives. That will be a safe place for them to just be and share struggles. Pray for our churches to be strong against this, to be ready, ready for the undebatable, unquestionable attacks that will certainly, inevitably come for us making these kind of bold claims. Pray that they would have courage, that they'd be strengthened to not comply and roll over with what the world demands. And pray for our nation, that we would come to a place of corporate repentance and go, this is not okay. We can't keep exalting in the streets, literally, amongst children. This wickedness, we need to repent together as a nation of these things. Pray that that will happen in our nation. And we need to pray for those who are particularly targeted by this campaign. You know, I think that there are actually genetic traits that make a person more of a target for this agenda. For example, the man with a slight frame and the high voice. I actually knew one of these young men... I was a youth pastor, and he walked into my office one day, and he's just a tiny little skinny kind of body, and he had a high voice. And he was in tears. He was weeping. He's like, Rich, everyone keeps telling me I'm gay. I'm not gay. I have a crush on that cute girl in youth group. But everybody keeps saying it. And all the girls want to be my friends, and all the boys kind of keep pushing me out, and they just refer to me this way and talk under their breath. And they keep telling me, just, hey, deal with it, brother. Embrace it. Embrace it. I'm not. I don't have those impulses. I, I know I could say it if I did, but I, I don't. A few months later, he stopped coming to church, didn't see him for a while. A couple years later, I ran into that same young boy out on the street, surrounded by a group of people, makeup all over his face, fingernails painted, totally bought in to the whole thing. That disgusting, abhorrent abomination of a movement targeted him. We need to pray for people like that. The church is where we show real compassion. It's where being a man is not about your voice or your body or your strength. Being a woman is not about your looks and your physique or your ability to bear children. Where you are an image bearer of God because he said so. You will not receive real compassion anywhere other than the true church of Christ. 
We must pray for those in our midst who need this kind of love shown to them. Real, not the false worldly version. And we need to trust in God that he really is in control. He will vindicate himself in the end. And all of those who have cried out against the Christian truths, bigot, homophobe, hater, we stand strong, humbly, with humility and truth, and leave justice up to God. He will bring it to fruition one day. Brothers and sisters, I know that our time this morning has barely scratched the surface of an incredibly important topic. There's so many things that I'd love to go, on, to go farther with. If you have questions about big topics or categories we haven't talked about, please come see me. I think that's maybe even in the near future, we may need to revisit this back on a Sunday and, and bring it back to the front for even greater clarity and to go down some further paths here. But let us know. Don't wonder and struggle about these things in the dark. Expose them to the light. You're welcome to do that amongst us. There are places that all of us would do well to think, think better about and to get clarity on. It's a service to our body to be the kind of people that aren't afraid to talk about anything with each other in a way that honors the Lord and our children and our neighbor. And so let's be a kind of people that seeks the humility that only God can give and a desire to be bold with what is true for the sake of God first and the lost people among us. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we trust you. We believe your word. Teach us to be a people who humbly, mercifully, graciously have compassion and patience on the lost people of this world. Help us to strike that important balance to hate the movement and love the people. We are no better than the people. We are no better than those who have given themselves over to sin. Father, we have believed the lies. We have been born into sinful bodies and sinful thinking. And Father, when we sin today as believers, we have no charge for ignorance. We darn well know what your word has said. We know Jesus has died for our sins. We know the torture and the brutality he had to face because of our sin, and yet we do it anyway. Father, teach us to have such great humility. Teach us to be a people who are so resilient to the lies of this world that the others around us will take notice. Teach us to have a right emphasis, Father. Teach us to be really clear in our rejection of the lies and our embracing of the truth. Father, I pray that many more churches would come to a place of faithfulness on this, that they will repent of the lies that they've been allowing to come into their church, that pastors will grow a pair and grow strong enough to say some things about this, and that Christians will hold their brothers in Christ accountable to lead churches into truth. Father, I pray for those that refuse to comply with what you have commanded, that those churches would close their doors and those believers would be faithfully served in other places. I am not afraid to pray that prayer. But Father, help this congregation to share humility in our view as we ferociously hate the things that destroy lives. Lord, we love you, and we need help with that balance. Teach us the right emphasis. Teach us the right priorities in this thinking. And help us do this on a daily basis in our own homes, in our churches, and in the world. We pray all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.